0: Hey everybody, it's Eric Tornberg, co-founder and partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. We're here today to talk about EOS and I'm joined by... Uh, Miles Snyder and Tony Chang. Miles, can you please introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Miles Snyder. Um I recently left MultiCoin Capital, where I was uh, leading research to launch an EOS block producer candidate called Aurora EOS. You heard it here first—big uh, <laughs> news! So, <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> so, so why? What's what's the promise? Like, why why leave yeah. such a prestigious position at Multi? at Multicata, such a great firm, like MultiCoin to take on this adventure. Sure. Um, I'm sure we'll get into sort of the, the deeper layers of the reasoning why I find EOS to be interesting and, and promising. But ultimately, I joined Multicoin um, a little over a year ago. I was actually the first employee and I came on board to to lead research efforts. And the reason that I um, wanted to do that was because doing research at a um, crypto hedge fund is a really great way to get a macro view of the industry and sort of take a top-down approach and and view all these different trends and things like that. And my goal is always to to do that for a while and then hopefully eventually find some sort of entrepreneurial path in the space. And originally, I thought that would take a few years, but I've been following EOS closely since the project's launch. Um, I've actually been following the uh, developer, Dan Larimer. Before that, he had some other projects, and I kind of knew that the tech stack well and the, the architecture that he uses. So I found EOS to be very interesting, and Multicoin uh, invested pretty heavily in EOS, and I was doing a lot of research on that front. Um, I wrote a few different pieces specifically about it. And as I spent more time researching it and um, sort of dove deeper on the protocol, I really thought that it was one of the more interesting things going on in the space and the place where I wanted to, to spend more and more, more and more of my time and kind of focus my efforts on, on one project. And being a block producer is a really interesting opportunity within the EOS ecosystem because it sort of allows you to create a... Um, kind of a, a hub within within the eos community and to do a lot of really cool things and you know to some extent um influence the direction of the protocol takes. so let's get into it what is eos and why do people hate it <laughs> <laughs> so that is a two-part question and i'll uh, tag it systematically um the so what is eos eos is a uh it's a smart contract platform it's a blockchain um it's also been described as a decentralized operating system which i think is is kind of an interesting way to describe it some people have called it uh, a dao um but essentially you know the, the biggest analog currently um in crypto is ethereum right it's a platform for building dapps um and for deploying smart contracts and so that is what eos is but it just takes a very different approach than Ethereum does or sort of any of the other competitors within that space. So what EOS attempts to do is create this, uh, you know, quote unquote decentralized operating system people can, can deploy dApps on. And that includes the ability to, you know, run this, um, trustless decentralized computation as well as some other features that EOS will be introducing in the future, including like a storage protocol, um, and things like that. And the approach that it takes to get there is, um, You know, it takes a much different set of trade-offs than Ethereum does. Ethereum really maximizes for decentralization, decentralization, decentralization at the expense of performance. And we all know that because if you've ever used Ethereum, um, especially, you know, when, um, there's a popular DAP that's uh, that's being used. It can be really slow. It maxes out at about fifteen transactions per second. Transactions take a while to confirm, um, especially if they get you know lost in the mempool. Gas can get really expensive. You have to pay for each individual transaction, et cetera, et cetera. You know, what EOS is attempting to do is um, sort of move along that spectrum where you you say, we don't want decentralization for its own sake. We want as much decentralization as we need to get the properties that we want, which is lack of single point of failure, censorship resistance, um, you know, no single party that controls it. But... EOS is also attempting to get usability and performance in a way that no other platform is is really going for right now and there's a few aspects to that one is just the pure throughput and scalability Um, you know it, it sort of remains to be seen what exactly the TPS the of EOS is because different transactions, you know, carry different amounts of data. And but as we know right now, with very simple transactions, it's it's gotten over three thousand transactions per second. So just pure throughput, it's you know orders of magnitude more than Ethereum. On the usability side, it also employs a token model that doesn't require users to pay for individual transactions. So with Ethereum, for each operation on the network, you have to pay gas to compensate the miners for performing that computation. EOS uses a different token model that we can go into later that um, that doesn't require users to pay for individual transactions. And then there's some other features that are really interesting, like human-readable account names. So, you know, you're no longer sending tokens to these long strings of letters and numbers that are really hard to distinguish, really hard for humans to read. You could register the account name, you know, Eric Tornberg, and I could send tokens directly to that. There's also, um, account permissions that you can sort of enable under an account. You can have different keys that have very specific permissions. So you could have, um, an owner key that owns the account that's kept in offline storage and an active key that actually can can do everything else except change the owner. And you can have a, a permission underneath that active key that is only for voting. So it's a specific key and the only operation it can perform is, is voting. And you could certainly imagine a lot of use cases for enterprises that have these accounts and can assign different permissions to, you know, people who are using and interacting with these accounts without having to like hand over keys. And there's also options for sort of protocol level um, account recovery where you can specify an account recovery partner. And again, that's certainly going to help to onboard, you know, everyday users, people who aren't crypto native and, um, and, uh, enterprises. As far as why do people hate EOS, I would contend that a lot of it comes from misunderstanding. Um, and hopefully this podcast will, will enlighten. clarify, yeah, enlighten or clarify some of those misunderstandings. And but I, I think a lot of it comes down to the trade-off set that EOS makes, which is some people consider it sort of antithetical to to what other projects are doing where they're maximizing for decentralization. But I would argue that if your end goal is decentralized applications that can reach large number of users and scale, You're never going to be able to do it using, um, a set of trade-offs that allows everyone to run full nodes on their laptop and, um, you know, has thousands of validators, et cetera, et cetera. And we can see that because like Ethereum right now is attempting to solve their scalability problems. And it's been this winding route that the Ethereum foundation and Vlad and Vitalik and some of these others have taken. And there's a lot of different things in the pipeline, which are like, you know, layer two solutions, plasma and state channels. Um, you've got sharding, you've got, Casper FFG, you've got, you know, full proof of stake Casper, and it remains to be seen to what extent those different solutions can come together and solve the scalability issue while also maintaining maximum decentralization. Whereas with EOS, if you're a developer, you really don't have to believe anything about the future state of the world to know how, um, and when your dApp can scale. Is, is EOS trying to be world computer? Is it trying to be sound money? I mean, what's, what's the end game? What's the dream? So I would contend that it's definitely not trying to be sound money. And in fact, this is one of the the things that I've been trying to tell people a lot lately is that I don't consider EOS a cryptocurrency. I think, you know, that's sort of the terminology we use for all of these things, but it's not really accurate because it's not attempting to be a currency. I see it as more of an, it's it's more like equity than it is like money, but it's not really either one of those things. But I think, you know, Bitcoin, for example, is very much attempting to be sound money, digital gold, gold 2.0, whatever you want to call it. Whereas EOS is really more like this sort of decentralized autonomous organization governed by its token holders. And in in that way, I think it sort of more represents equity. But what it really is trying to do is is be this decentralized operating system that offers um, a certain set of, of goods and services to users at the best price um and it's a completely opt-in system. So in that way I see it more like a decentralized firm than like a sound money. Do you, does that mean that you think Ethereum is sort of fucked in terms of not going to be sound money and it's not going to be well like I don't I don't necessarily think Ethereum is fucked, but like I think that they've got a lot of issues they're, they're just going to continue to see more and more issues with scalability. And I don't see anything on the immediate horizon other than layer two solutions that are going to be able to help with that. And I think um, the sort of user experience of Layer 2 solutions remains to be seen. Like if you're getting users onboarded onto your dApp that's built on a Plasma chain and they have to go from Coinbase onto the Ethereum main chain and then down onto your CryptoKitties chain um, and then they want to trade that CryptoKitty on a DEX that's located on another Plasma chain. Like what does that experience look like for users? Um, is it ever going to be sort of as fast and seamless and user-friendly enough to, to, to get the next wave of, of crypto users on board? I don't. I don't really see that on the horizon for Ethereum, whereas I do see that on the horizon for EOS. But I also think that they they take very different sets of trade offs. So you could see certain use cases gravitating towards one platform or the other. I don't think it's like a completely. Do you think they can both coexist. I think so. Yeah, yeah. I don't,
1: I don't think you sufficiently answered why people hate EOS. I don't like. I don't think people hate it because they have a really clear picture of what decentralized enough means, and they don't think EOS is decentralized. Although that is one common argument, like twenty-one block producers isn't enough. But you know, really, we don't know how secure or decentralized things are until they're under attack. So this is kind of a. I mean, it's really like sticking your finger in the air and being like, "This is decentralized enough for me." But other other things that people have problems with EOS around are like. The nature of the fundraise, the behavior of Block 1, or the, like, the lack of progress from Block 1 after raising that much money, some early mishaps from the launch, like the, the notice from I, – I, I don't really know all the details, but some notice that Block 1 or some central authority around EOS sent to the block producers to change, and they all changed it. Um, so, so really questions around the legitimacy of like whether there is governments, the fundraise itself and kind of the, the intentions of the whole thing. So I w- would love to, and, and okay, and, and additional things like recently rumors that are, I, I haven't looked into this, but I've heard that it's too expensive to even run a dApp now on EOS to afford RAM or something like that. There was no way to create uh, wallets early on. So so all of those kind of things are also contributing to it. It's it's not as simple as, you know, this this isn't decentralized enough.
0: Yeah, that's fair. Um I think that it's important to distinguish, obviously, between Block One and EOS as it exists today. Block One is the company that like published the open source software that they call EOSIO. Anyone was free to run with that and create a blockchain. And there actually have been several projects that have used the EOSIO software, create blockchains. Um and I'd actually I wouldn't be surprised if someone spins up a plasma chain using the EOSIO software. But you know, I I'm not gonna sit here and defend the, you know, four billion dollar raise that, that Block One did if I wanna give the most charitable explanation. It's that they um you know, if you're creating a proof-of-stake system, the initial distribution obviously matters a lot. And probably the only thing worse than an uncapped raise is a capped raise, um especially a cap raise that takes place in a very short amount of time because that allows whales to just um come in and take the whole thing. So you know, by structuring it the way they did over the course of one year with this smart contract that kind of forced people to cost average their way in rather than being able to buy all these large chunks at once allowed one for over the course of the entire year of development as different things came out and news changed, people could either move into or out of their positions. You know, you had a full year's worth of market churn um, before the Genesis snapshot was taken. And you also had this structure that didn't allow anyone to sort of come in and buy um, these massive chunks at once. Again, that's sort of the most charitable explanation there. Block one obviously raised an incredibly large amount of money, and they, um, you know, they have been pretty hands off with the whole process. I think there's there's certainly like legal liabilities that they're concerned about, and they they didn't want to get um, involved with the launch itself because of that. But we have seen them put out some um, developer tools and they're hosting hackathons. They're working on an iOS wallet um, that should debut pretty soon. And there's some other stuff in the works that you know I think could be really beneficial to the system. Um, and we'll get into that with the account creation. But I also think that there is also a benefit to the fact that because block one was so hands-off, it really forced like the EOS community to take charge of the launch and the tooling and the infrastructure and all of that. Um, and you could sort of say like, you know, shame on block one for not doing that, but it is what it is. And as a result, you had a lot of block producers and other communities members come forward and produce all of this, um, infrastructure, including wallets and, you know, block explorers and developer tools and all of that stuff. And it also like the, the launch was very rocky as, as Tony mentioned, and there were definitely issues around it, but like. Part of that is because block one wasn't involved. They just published this software and then this group of like 50 plus block producer candidates all around the world tried to coordinate across different countries, different time zones, different languages. And I followed this all along as it happened. And it was certainly messy, as you would expect when you're trying to coordinate all these independent parties. But ultimately, a mainnet got up and launched um and there were, you know, there were some issues early on with the software that that did get solved, and, and EOS is is up and running now. And I think that there's a lot of room for improvement, and that's the reason that you know I'm launching a block producer candidate because I think that um, we can sort of help steer the direction of that and, and help with some of these um, improvements. I think that's kind of that's one of the the benefits of delegated proof of stake is that like when you have just pure proof of work mining, these companies come along, and if they can dedicate Um, the most hash power to the network, they can produce blocks and they don't have to bring any value in addition to that. Whereas with Delegated Proof of Stake, you have hundreds of companies all over the world that are competing for token holder votes. So providing you know securely and reliably producing blocks is the baseline of what they all have to do. They're all going above and beyond that to bring additional value to the community and to the network and to the token holders in order to earn votes. And that creates this incentive system that, Pitch these different block research candidates against one another to produce all sorts of, of tooling and infrastructure that, um, that automatically helps the network in a way that, um, that the validators on other types of networks don't. And that's one of the, one of the reasons that I like, uh, delegate proof of stake a lot. And then I think the final thing you touched upon was like the cost of development. So like any one of these networks, like it's never going to be completely free to, to, uh, build on them or to use them or anything like that. Because what they are inherently is a set of scarce resources and you have to figure out a way to allocate those resources. So with um, Ethereum, you know, it's a fixed set of resources and you have to pay the gas to sort of get access to the computation. And as we've seen with Ethereum, that can get really expensive or really clogged up. With the EOS token model, your, your token ownership entitles you to a pro rata share of the overall network resources. But because as i mentioned before you have these human readable account names it's not just that you can you can spin up these addresses um, really easily you actually have to stake um some tokens to get access to the ram to create an account um and there's an internal market within the protocol that um that determines the ram price and so at one point uh, a lot of speculators stepped in really early on and drove up the ram price like crazy now it's come down quite a bit but it's still not as cheap as you'd want it to be to to have DApps that could directly onboard users by creating accounts for them because that can get pretty expensive. Now, there's a, f- a few different proposals that have been floated to get the RAM price down and thus get account creation to be cheaper. One of them is just a you know block producers will be introducing a constant stream of new RAM to increase the total amount of RAM in the system. But there's some other other uh, proposals as well. But I think what you kind of have to compare it to is like, if you're a dApp that's built on, you know, either Ethereum or EOS, there is going to be some sort of user onboarding cost. So one option is to just say, Hey, we're going to build our dApp. And if you already have an EOS account, you, and you, you have your own resources that you've staked tokens for, then you can come use our dApp. The other option is to say, Hey, we're gonna try and go get users and we're gonna actually create accounts for them and you know stake some tokens for them to, to get access to resources. Now that's a much more capital intensive um way of doing it, but some, some dApps may have a model where they actually um you know they actually have a business model and they wanna do that. And it's kind of equivalent to saying like, you know, on Ethereum, CryptoKitties could say, hey, if you wanna use CryptoKitties, you gotta to go to Coinbase, buy some Ethereum, import it into MetaMask, and then you can come buy a CryptoKitty. Or they could take the option of saying, "Hey, you come to us. You don't need an account. You know, you just download MetaMask, and we'll give you a little bit of ether to pay for your initial gas costs." And those are like two different models that that DApps could take. That it really depends on on the business model of the DApp itself. But the the overall goal, I think, right now is just to to do what's necessary to increase the amount of RAM in the system so that the actual cost of individual account creation okay. isn't prohibitively expensive.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds it, it, well. Is it fair to say that early stage protocols all have their scaling issues and growing pains? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I guess like one thing that that kind of so j- just d- disclosure. I work on a a project that's on top of Ethereum, but I think personally, I wouldn't say that I have any tribal affiliations, and I'm I'm certainly not like a a passionate EOS like hater. From the outside, it does. What one thing that does seem does does frustrate me a little bit is that there are a lot of claims flying around EOS. I think I think you've given a pretty balanced perspective on things, but there are even even as you described it, you were saying you were comparing EOS scalability with Ethereum's and sufficient enough decentralization and all these kind of things. But when you actually look at the uh, the details, it doesn't quite seem to be there yet. Like it's not really governed by its token holders. It's not really scalable yet because like, people can't create accounts. It's not yet proven whether it's decentralized enough. Some people claim that it's more fair, but maybe we should get into the block producing stuff later. But there are a lot of issues with the rewards to block producers and even the way that block producers are voted in because you know v- voting is really an unsolved problem. So People with a lot of tokens and even exchanges that hold a lot of EOS have a, a lot of influence over the system. So wh- while I agree that there are a lot of really fascinating design choices within EOS, and I could also see how a protocol design like EOS could better serve some set of use cases better than you know other smart contract protocols, I think a lot, a lot of it is lost in the discourse and, and getting to the details is something that's challenging with like, the vague language that's used to describe all of this. That's what I'm here for, Tony.
0: <laughs> no, I mean, seriously, I, I, I'm hoping to offer a more balanced perspective. I think that, um, I think that there have been issues with how things have been communicated. Um, I think that there have been a lot of like misunderstandings and there's been an inability for the EOS community to bridge to the greater crypto community at large. And I think there's also been confusion about what is, um, you, you know, like what lies in, the future for EOS and, and what is actually possible right now, because even the software itself is not yet feature complete. And over the course of the next like twelve months, you're going to see uh, block producers, you know, adding in new features and really getting this protocol to a level of maturity. Whereas right now, it's kind of like beta software. And so I think um, you know, like these next twelve months are really important because. You can actually introduce some of these changes before the protocol ossifies a little bit. And that's really where I, I see an opportunity for us as a block producer to be able to do some of those things. Yeah, there, there are a lot of rumors swirling around US It's hard to know what's true. But there's one rumor that the consensus algorithm is actually a conference called Dan Larimer. Is that is that correct? <laughs> is, is that correct? So. The consensus by conference call is uh, a meme that has been floating around on Twitter. Um, I think I know who started that, but I won't call him out <laughs> directly. But uh, it, it it sort of gets to the nature of, of what delegated proof of stake is. And we could go into a lot of stuff with this, but to, to sort of talk about this issue specifically with the the theory behind DPoS at scale is that you have these large transparent public facing organizations that are voted in by token holders and the token holders sort of delegate the privilege to them of of being one of the block producers. And there's 21 block producers at any given time who are actually producing blocks, but there's currently sixty plus block producers that are actually paid by the protocol. So there's plenty of backups should any of those twenty one drop off the network or get voted out or anything like that. And then beyond those sixty, there's another, you know, there's there's I think a, 150 plus block producer candidates in the world who are vying for those positions. So it's not like there's only 21 entities there, but at any given time there's, there's 21 who are actually producing blocks and all the token holders know who they are and all the block producers know who each other are. And that, you know, allows something like a conference call among the top 21 to take place. Um, if there is like an issue with the software or anything like that. Um, and actually it's not just the top 21 that, that, like, you know, we'll do a call or, you know, a giant telegram chat or something like that. It's, it's usually like the top 50. Um, but that's just the, the, the nature of DPoS. And there's kind of, there's advantages and disadvantages to that model that we can get into. This one's for our Bitcoiners out there, like, because they sort of have this, you know, belief that centralization is pretty binary and you know, even Ethereum isn't decentralized enough. What do you, one, let's elucidate that argument Let's travel version of that argument, and then let's respond to it. Sure. I mean, I would say if you think that decentralization is binary, I would ask you to define decentralization. And I haven't seen a a good definition of what constitutes decentralization. I think there is, you know, you could talk about each of these protocols and talk about fifty different vectors, each of which could be centralized. Um, but then you kind of have to think about as a whole: is the network decentralized um, or not? So, um, I think that's, that's one thing. And then the other thing is, is it sort of begs the question of is decentralization the goal in and of itself, or are there other goals that decentralization helps you achieve? And if you believe that, then it kind of naturally leads to the question of how much decentralization do you need to get those things? And what are the trade-offs if you get, if you sort of maximize for more decentralization or less decentralization. Great. And Bitcoiners would say that it's necessary for what they're trying to do is sound money. Yeah and i would argue that for for you know decentralized gold 2.0 backbone of the uh, internet monetary system the tradeoffs that bitcoin has made has made uh, do make sense um i think maximizing for decentralization at the expense of performance is is a tradeoff that, that makes sense for for bitcoin I don't think it's a trade-off that makes sense for a platform for decentralized applications, especially if you ever hope to get users on those decentralized applications.
1: The the very use of decentralized as a label for applications that are being built on a protocol suggests that there is at least a way to classify decentralization as binary, like decentralized enough to label an app decentralized, right, or a protocol being a a decentralized protocol. Uh, At some point the degree to which you're decentralized is not sufficient to call yourself a decentralized protocol. I'm not saying that that's the case here, but just semantically, I think that's yeah, probably I, the most logical reading of this. Well, I
0: think you're right, but I think that different people have different views on like where that fine line is because, you know, as we've seen people call things dApps that have very, very high levels of centralization along certain vectors. Um Yeah. So it is it is kind of like a terminology problem. But I also think that like there are um there are sort of hybrid centralized decentralized applications that are kind of cool and make sense. Like one is um like Numeri, for example, is this centralized hedge fund that runs um these data science competitions using Ethereum as its back end. Um and that allows them to sort of reach this global audience of of data scientists and allow them to um to participate kind of permissionlessly. But, you know, if if Numeri shut down, then the Numeri token would probably lose its value and that that protocol wouldn't be all that useful. But should they be using EOS? You know, I don't know enough about their operations to know whether like scalability or, you know, usability are really bottlenecks for them. Um, they, I'm sure that their crowd of data scientists is a really technical crowd. So I, ma- I would imagine that it's not. That being said, if, you know, a few other dApps take off on Ethereum and really clog up the network to the point where things become really, really slow for Numerai or, and, and their data scientists are having problems with that, then yeah, maybe it wouldn't make sense for them to move DOS. My question is, why aren't developers, entrepreneurs, builders, like, flocking DOS, you know, because performance scalability has been a bottleneck for, for, for lots of things. I mean, I think that there are developers who are building on EOS, um, but in terms of, like, why aren't they flocking from Ethereum to EOS? I don't think it's quite so simple to port over a dApp, um, especially when you've already spent, you know, a year or so building in, in solidity and optimizing for the EVM, et cetera, et cetera. But I also just think that um, I um it doesn't surprise me that, that people aren't porting over yet, and I don't blame them for for not doing it. I think EOS needs more time to develop, and, and frankly, it needs to prove itself before I would expect... Um, developers to sort of migrate in mass.
1: Well, I, just practically speaking, would you be able to today? Say you wanted to launch a CryptoKitties-style app that yeah. supports 10,000 users. Yeah,
0: would, I mean, like, there there are some CryptoKitties-like dApps that are built on EOS already. Um, there's MonsterEOS.io. Yeah,
1: but not, not just like, you know, can I code it, but w- would it actually run? Would I be able to create the, what would it cost me to create all of the accounts? What would it cost me to, you know, pay for all the transactions?
0: So again, it kind of begs the question of which model are you using? Um, but it is possible. And like, there are examples of applications that have done this and you can go download scatter, which is the, um, Chrome extension similar to MetaMask, but for EOS. And you can go interact with these things. Um, but the approach that a lot of them are taking right now is they're saying, you need to create your own EOS account. You need to provide your own bandwidth um, and sort of like stake for your own resources. And then you can come use this application. But if they wanted to take the other model where they're actually paying for account creation for users and paying for their user's bandwidth, then they're going to have to use, you know, either they're going to have to just pay out of pocket for that and accept that as a user acquisition cost, or they're going to have to design their DAP in such a way that it actually has an income producing um, business model. Right now, the bottleneck for a lot of these dApps is the account creation cost. And that's something that, uh, that, you know, we're very interested in working, like working on solutions for. Um, the first of which is just increasing the, the total amount of RAM. But in terms of deploying the smart contracts on the platform, that doesn't really seem to be a bottleneck for, for anyone right now in terms of cost. I mean, there is a cost to development like there is in any of these networks, but it's not astronomically high. It's really the account creation people are having issues with at the
1: moment. So do what, is your app? Maker and you want to pay for the uh, account creation and the transactions. You stake EOS to have to get access to rata shares of those com- those resources. Do they ever get? Does your stake ever get consumed, or do you just always have that prorata share of EOS? I mean, I guess you get. I guess your share decreases over time because of the inflation model of EOS. But do you ever have to like actually spend it, or do you just keep it staked?
0: You you can keep it staked, and that's sort of what it is. It's a, as you as you mentioned that because of inflation, your your claim decreases uh, sort of pro rata over time. But once you've staked tokens, you get access to the to to those resources um, in perpetuity. And if you're a dap, uh, if you're a, you know an, a company that's launched a dap, you can stake you know RAM and bandwidth to a new user, and um, you can actually stake tokens for them without giving. Like actually giving them the EOS. So they're able to, you know, create an account and have their keys, but you staked a certain amount of resource to them that technically you could unstake and they go back to you. Um, There's, there's different options. You could, you could stake them where you actually hand over those tokens to the new user and they own them. Or you can sort of stake tokens for for uh, another account. while you actually um, maintain control of those. So if you choose to unstake them, then then those resources go back to you. And that's kind of an interesting model for certain applications because if you know if a, if you onboard a user and stake some tokens for them, and then they um, you know they don't continue to be a user over time, you could unstake those tokens and get them back. Do you want to describe the differences between proof stake, delegated proof stake? Yeah. So, delegated proof of stake is, as I mentioned before, it's a token model where, or sorry, it's a consensus model where token holders, uh, cast votes on chain. Each token holder can cast votes for 30 block producers, and the top 21 block producers by total number of votes cast become those who, who actually produce blocks at any given time. Users can change their votes or revoke their votes at any time. So, um, so the, the actual Entities who are in the top 21 can, can shift over time. And the way that the EOS does it is that it compensates the core 21 block producers, you know, with a certain amount of the block rewards. And then it also compensates, um, you know, about 40 backup block producers who get paid less than the core 21, but are still paid. So they're incentivized, um, not only to, beyond standby should any of these of those other block producers get voted out. But they also kind of provide like watchdog services in a way because um they're obviously watching the top twenty-one have an incentive to publicize any misbehavior on the top on the you know on the part of the top twenty one so that they could get voted in themselves. But I think that something that I touched on earlier, one of the really interesting things about delegated proof of stake is that it really incentivizes these um these block producers to bring additional value to the network beyond just you know, providing security and, and validation of blocks. And so I think that's a really interesting incentive mechanism, but the main reason for, for using delegated proof of stake, I think if you ask any um, developer who's implemented it is the scalability benefits. When you concentrate block production among these 21 entities, you um, you can just get orders of magnitude more throughput than you can. If you have, um, you know, these different miners all over the world who, who are sort of um, producing uh like blocks with different amounts of, of hash power so another thing that we could talk about with with delegated proof of stake and tony touched on this earlier is this idea of like you know on-chain voting and how much control do whales have et cetera, et cetera. so this gets a little bit into what i was saying when you compare bitcoin to something like eos with bitcoin you have bitcoin is really attempting to be money 2.0 and when you have a money system i i personally would contend that it's it's more important to design it such that the people with the most money don't have more control than the, the people with the least money, because that just creates a, a really unfair system. So the, the, um, the Bitcoin governance system, what I think Pierre Richard has described as it's like peer-to-peer governance, um, that doesn't exist on chain, doesn't, um, your, your stake is not taken into account. It creates this distributed system of governance where the, all the different participants in, in Bitcoin, um, you know, have have a different say, but no one has like an overwhelming say because they own a lot of Bitcoin. So for money, that that makes sense. Now, if you're trying to do something like a, you know, decentralized smart contracts platform or decentralized operating system like EOS is, as I said before, I kind of liken it to a, a DAO or a decentralized firm. And, you know, it's really not attempting to be money. It's a, attempting to be something else. And if you have purchased a bigger stake in this system, you have more at risk, and thus you should have a bigger say in, um, in, in how this thing evolves and, you know, who gets to be the validator and how it operates. And so I think proof of stake makes more sense for these types of platforms than it does for, for money 2.0. How much, how much EOS, what percentage of EOS
1: does, uh, does
0: Block One have? Block One has 10% of the EOS tokens that are vested over 10 years. And they uh, have not voted with any of their stake yet, though they have indicated that eventually they will participate in voting once they constitute a minority of the um of the voting power on the network.
1: who's are they the largest
0: holder right now? Yeah, they're the largest single stakeholder, although I believe there are some funds in China who have you know, so block one is 100 million EOS, and I think there's, there's some funds who have, you know, 50 or 60 million, or at least like oh, wow. consortiums. But that being said, currently only about, uh, I think, you know, as of today, it's like 25% of EOS holders have actually cast votes. And so a goal of ours as a block producer is very much to work towards increasing voter participation. And I think, I think that there is definitely a voter apathy issue that is always going to plague You know, protocols that have on-chain governance and on-chain voting, but I also think there's a UX issue that contributes a lot to, um, to, uh, voting participation. And as it stands right now, um, you know, there's not even hardware wallets available for EOS. I think as soon as you have the ability to vote from your Trezor or your ledger, we could see a lot more voter participation. Or as people get more comfortable with setting up account permissions so that they could have, you know, a cold storage owner key and a, a hot voting key that they can just use for voting. So there's, I think there's a lot of really low hanging fruit on the voter participation side. I don't ever expect voter participation to be 100%, but I think we can get it a lot higher than where it is today. You could have played different roles in the U.S. ecosystem. You could have started a you know fund solely focused on building products on top of it. You could have started a project that, that builds on top of it. You decided to be a block producer. Why and, and say more about you know, what a block producer does and, and what's, the, what's the role of it? Yeah. So as I mentioned before, block producers are all competing with one another to offer additional value adds to the network beyond just saying we can produce blocks securely and reliably. And so that offers a huge space for anyone to step in and, and create value. I mean, it, like, what, where can you add value? That's a, a, a giant question. I think that the reason that we wanted, that we wanted to launch this block producer is because we saw some really low hanging fruit with education, education, outreach, market development. Those are kind of the things that we're focused on right now. Um, as I mentioned before, No one has really been able to bridge the gap between the core EOS community and the sort of greater crypto community. And I think there's additional bridges to be built among the EOS community and the enterprises that would maybe build, build on EOS and the funds who are invested in EOS and should be participating in things like voting. And so, you know, I think we're in a position that we're able to do that. And then I also think just general education. I've talked to a lot of people who sort of. Um, know a little bit about EOS, but haven't really managed to, to dive deep on some of the things that make it really interesting. Or they've just kind of gotten lost in the mix and they said like, you know, I own EOS, but I haven't voted yet. I don't really know what's going on right now. I don't know where things stand. Um, and I think, you know, we can, we can offer a lot more updated communication on exactly what's going on at any given time. Um, we plan to offer sort of in-depth analyses of various issues that are facing the EOS ecosystem. And as I mentioned before, we have this like, you know, six to 18 month timeframe where a lot of these new features are going to be added, things are going to be changing. Um, the community is going to have to decide on the direction they want this thing to take. And our plan is to, you know, produce a lot of in-depth analysis of, of those various issues so that people can make informed decisions about it. So th- that's one reason. And I think that's a natural role block reason to play. You know, obviously it's a, it's a lucrative position, which is, you know, is part of what makes it interesting. It's part of the, um, the It's part of why the incentive system of delegated proof-of-stake works. But finally, I see block producers as um, they're, they're able to take this macro view of the EOS ecosystem. As I mentioned before, I, can, I kind of came into Multicoin to take a macro view of the industry as a whole. I decided I'm really interested in focusing on EOS, and block producers can sort of build these hubs within the EOS ecosystem um, that I think have the potential to do a lot of interesting things beyond just pure block
1: production. Okay, in addition to education... What are you planning to do as a block producer, and how do you hope to win one of the coveted spots of uh, actual block producing entities?
0: Yeah, so as I mentioned before, in addition to education, one of our initiatives is really going to be around um, increasing voter participation. and as a result of having spent the last year at multicoin Capital, which is um, you know one of the bigger crypto hedge funds in the space, um, I've developed really close relations with a lot of enterprises, a lot of funds and, you know, individuals and other participants in the EOS ecosystem. And I've spent the last couple of months just having conversations with these people and, and asking them about like, what are the tools you need to get onboarded? Um, you know, have you voted yet? If not, if not, why not? Um, and, and what would make you vote? So I think th- those two things are really important. And then the other thing is just general market development. You know, I've had, I've built relationships with a lot of, um, DAP developers, um, sort of companies that are interested in the blockchain space, you know, not necessarily doing decentralized applications, but building other interesting infrastructure. And I, I think there's definitely areas where the trade off set of, of EOS makes a lot of sense. And I think we can help to onboard some of those use cases and, you know, help educate them about why EOS makes sense as a platform for them. And then also just help them actually get onboarded.
1: Awesome. Do you think uh, any. Degree of education will bridge the gap between the most skeptical, the folks that are most skeptical of EOS and EOS?
0: Yes. I think it, it depends on, on what level, um, of research they've already done and sort of how much they've already been educated. There's people who have done their research and have already made up their minds and, you know, there, there may maybe no changing that, but I definitely think there's room for people who are highly skeptical of EOS because of the general dialogue around it, because of, their sort of understandings or even misunderstandings about how how the launch went down, about how the system is designed, what what's the reality on the ground, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think there's there's a lot of ground to be covered there. Um I don't expect to like convert the whole Ethereum community into EOS maximalists. That's not realistic, and that's not the goal. But I think that. There's uh, there's a lot of work to be done just in terms of getting people up to up to speed about what's actually going on and what EOS actually looks like. I mean, I think there's people who think that there like there's people who think that there is no EOS community. Um, I've had people sort of be surprised that there's even a community of developers right. and builders and things like that. And there really is a thriving community. I've been super impressed with a lot of the people that I've um, that I've had the the pleasure of interacting with in the EOS community. Now, are they public about it? Like, are they? Uh... Do they feel embarrassed? Because I feel like there is sort of a... Yeah, I mean, I think there's like, given what we said about the fact that like a lot of people really don't like EOS, there is a social cost to coming out and, and being right. bullish on EOS. I mean, we've certainly yes. seen that at Multicoin Capital. <laughs> I've seen it. Kyle's seen it. Tshar's seen it. And I think some some developers probably feel the same way. But interestingly enough, there's also a lot of developers I've met who either like briefly got involved in Ethereum in 2017 and and kind of immediately realized it wasn't suitable for them and then jumped to EOS or who kind of found EOS before they found anything else. And they don't really care about the dialogue within like the, the rest of the crypto community because they've kind of already jumped right into the EOS community. And that's kind of one of my big theses around EOS is that I don't necessarily think that the way that EOS succeeds is by convincing all the doubters within this core insular cryptocurrency community that exists today. I think the opportunity for EOS is like onboarding the next 100 million users directly onto dApps and onboarding users who aren't crypto native already and who end up using these things because there's cool, useful stuff built on it. And because EOS can scale and has optimized for usability in a lot of senses, I think that right now it's a platform that stands the best chance to do that. Yeah, it is just interesting to me zooming out for a second. Like, yeah, Bitcoin clearly has you know re- religion it tied to it with Satoshi with and Ethereum uh-huh. with with the you know Vitalik. And Ripple is sort of you know like not even trying, right? Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> but it, it was presumably like, why doesn't it have its own religion? Like, you know, it's very idealistic in its own way as well. Like, why just from a branding perspective, like, have or community perspective has, has Ethereum say like captured the mindshare? Like, you you could imagine it reversed, like. I think that the thing that Ethereum really got right was being the first to um, publicize this idea of creating a blockchain and making it a general purpose platform for building all sorts of crazy stuff. Because like you often ask people, like, you know, what's the first question you ask people in crypto? It's like, how do you? What's your story about going down the rabbit hole? Everyone has this. And for, um, people who kind of came in pre 2014, 2015, almost all of them discovered Bitcoin and went down that Bitcoin rabbit hole. A lot of them, you know, um, either had or discovered like the Austrian economic side of it and, and really went into like the sound money thing. And then there's also a huge class of, of crypto people who describe their aha moment or their rabbit hole moment as like reading the Ethereum white paper, or finding out, or sorry, the, Was it a white paper or a yellow paper? I can't remember. But finding out about um, Ethereum and like who maybe even had heard of Bitcoin before, but have kind of had kind of written it off. But then when they thought, wow, you can build on this and you can build all sorts of cool stuff. A lot of people really gravitated towards that. And because Ethereum was the first to do that, I think it managed to capture a lot of developer mindshare. And so every other smart contract platform that comes after it is going to have a hard time competing with that first mover advantage. But there are a lot of people in the EOS ecosystem who, who feel very strongly that EOS has the best set of trade-offs. And I would describe them, at, you know, if people in Ethereum are sort of like decentralization maximalists, a lot of the people in the EOS community are more like usability or utility maximalists. There's also a, um, you know, there's a fair amount of, of developer interest that, is, that started with BitShares, um, that was Dan's original project and was launched, you know, prior to even Ethereum launching. And a lot of people gravitated towards this idea of getting a lot more scalability using delegated proof of stake, um, using Graphene, which is like the framework that all these things are built on. And then they followed him to Steam. Um, and, you know, I think Steam is kind of an underrated platform. Um, there's a ton of dApps that are built on Steam. There's... You know, I don't know if I want to say there's as many as are built on Ethereum, but there's like a lot of decentralized applications that are built on top of the Steam blockchain that just, for whatever reason, haven't haven't gained as much traction as the Ethereum dApps. And then a lot of those developers, you know, they they want to move to EOS because they like the idea of having, you know, a totally general purpose platform where users can have, you know, a single account and, and get access to all the different things that are built on top of it. How do you think perception of EOS will change? I think that perception will change when we have the first sort of major dApp that gains traction on EOS. I would invite everyone who's listening to go and download Scatter, um, pick up some EOS, and just go play around with some of the stuff that's live. Um, whether it's, um, you know, like I mentioned, like one of these CryptoKitties alternatives like Monster EOS or EOS Knights or, you know, Wizard.1 or um, Everpedia has their proof of concept live, which is, I think it's IQNetwork.io. And you'll see the the level of usability is is quite a bit different from what you're used to on Ethereum. Um, so, for example, I had my IQ tokens, which are the Everipedia tokens, on a desktop wallet, and I had to send those to my um, to my Scatter extension to use the network. Send them from my wallet, and bam, instantly confirmed. They're they're there in my Scatter. Um, then you have to go and stake those in order to be able to actually to use the network. So I stake them, bam, single transaction confirms nearly instantly and I'm ready to use the network. Whereas, you know, had you done that with Ethereum and, and MetaMask, you would have been waiting for quite some time in between each of those things. You would have had to pay a transaction fee for each of those operations and sort of just the speed and smoothness of these things is, is much, much different. So I've, I've really gotten a taste of that. Um, and I think there's a lot more to come. I'm not sure what's going to be the first decentralized application built on EOS that gains traction. You know, maybe it will be Everpedia. Maybe it is going to be one of these um, fully on-chain DEXs that launches. Um, Bitfinex is working on EOS FINEX, which is a fully on-chain DEX. Um, there's another project called DEX EOS. But I think once there's an application that actually gains a significant amount of users and people actually go and start to use EOS and realize how different the experience is compared to some of these other alternatives, that's when people are going to start really taking it more seriously but there's a lot of building to be done in the meantime
1: yeah so go- going back to decentralization we had talked about whether it's a binary label or a gradient uh, or, or a sliding scale or, or whatever mm-hmm. so to, to me it seems like the decentralization topic around EOS has kind of been hand away like some people say we don't need this much decentralization but it seems to me if you're not trying to achieve superlative decentralization, like maximum decentralization, then the onus is on you to prove that it is decentralized enough to, say, uh, prevent some powerful group from changing the rules without the consent of the rest of the network or rearranging blocks or something like that. Do you think there's any plan for EOS to try and prove that? Or do you think it'll just say, oh, it's decentralized enough until it is attacked? Because that, that's a huge risk for users
0: yeah um i mean i don't know exactly how you go about proving that and to what extent it would it would actually like convince the masses and i would say that you know if you're comparing it to ethereum like has ethereum proven that um you could almost make the argument that it has not with the DAO hack and the you know subsequent changing of the rules that that happened with that. Well,
1: hold on. That, that's almost a comment made in bad faith, right? Because the DAO hack had nothing to do with decentralization. That was a bug in our code. No, but a, the... A, something the, that was not on the main chain.
0: Yeah, but the the ability to to change the rules such that the um, stolen funds were were returned to users.
1: Sure, but th- that's a governance. I mean, they they did fork off of the chain, so that would be as if. Somebody disagreed with something on EOS and they just forked EOS and started another EOS. And the fact that the community went on to this forked version of Ethereum reflects the the, the wishes of the network participants.
0: Yeah, no, that's fair. I guess, so If what you're getting at is like, what would be the cost to attack the network and, and how can you prove that it's sufficiently high? I, I don't know if you can prove it. Maybe in the show notes you can link to an article that I wrote called Um Why Decentralization Matters. Or it was a response to an article written by um, Spencer Bogart of Blockchain Capital. Um, and I specifically talked about the sort of decentralization, censorship resistance of, of EOS as a network. And what I kind of walked through in that exercise was like, you know, what would it take to to compromise the EOS network? And if you were, you know, if you were out seeking to to destroy EOS, what would it realistically cost and what would it take to do it? And so the idea is that you have at any given time twenty-one independent block producers located all over the world that are that are producing blocks. It requires fifteen out of twenty-one to maintain consistent approval in order to change any of the rules of the network. So even if you had you know fifteen out of twenty-one agree to some change that the token holder community at large very much disagreed with, those block producers could could be voted out um, and replaced with with new block producers the the other sort of question is you know if say um you know there were a few block producers located in the united states and the united states decided to make block production illegal um they could go and simultaneously shut down those three block producers all that's going to happen in that case is that those three block produ- those three nodes fall off the network and are instantly replaced by backup nodes um so it's really not going to be effective you could imagine a Coordinated attack by, you know, several different, you know, nations all over the world to simultaneously do dawn raids on the block producers and and shut them down and compromise the network. I think that's extremely unrealistic and is, you know, you could could imagine crazy attack scenarios for, for each of these networks. But I think that's unrealistic, and it you know it remains to be seen whether it would even be successful because they could take all those nodes off the network, and those nodes could be replaced by nodes that are in more free jurisdictions. Now, the sort of final question is about censorship, and again, if any individual node, if any one of the t- of the twenty one block producers chooses to censor a transaction, it is completely ineffective because it just gets processed by the next block producer. Um, the only way that a transaction can sort of be rendered um, null is if 15 out of 21 block producers choose to reject it and then it becomes um, an invalid transaction. So that would require, so if, if any one block producer is, is consistently censoring transactions, they, they could be voted out for that. But it's, it's not even worth it for them to attempt to do it because it's not going to actually result in the transaction not being included in the ledger. The most damage they can do is sort of delay the transaction by a few seconds by not producing it or by not, by not including it in that block. So it would require collusion by 15 out of the top 21 block producers to, to censor, um, a transaction. And so the sort of attack on the network would be if 15 of these 21 block producers colluded to say, um, censor votes that voted them out of the network or something like that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I, I guess this, this, I think this highlights an impasse that is, that won't be crossed. What you're saying is totally reasonable, right? Like the probability of censorship or, Successful attacks on the network is low, mm-hmm. but some people will say it's not low enough. And even if you, you, you need an overwhelming majority of these block producers to agree, and you have a lot of incentives for people to report bad actors and vote them out and get processes to replace them with better block producers. The fact that you you, you do, you only need, I mean, you could say you need all of 15 block producers to collude, or you could say you only need fifteen entities to collude, and knowing that they all get on a conference call isn't very uh, confidence-inducing.
0: I, I think you're right, and it, it probably is an impasse. We could argue this all day, and people are going to approach it from from different perspectives. But one thing that I will say is that there's there's an aspect of, of game theory at work here that I think is is present in proof of work blockchains as well, which is that you hear people in the Bitcoin community say, you know, we shouldn't really worry about X mining entity having, you know, a large share of the hash power because their incentive is to just, you know, keep mining on the network in order to have this perpetual or this, you know, ongoing income stream. Because if they were to attack the network, it destroys the value of their business, the value of their future earnings, et cetera, et cetera. And you could say the exact same thing about block producers. If they were to collude, they would, um, sort of destroy the value of the network, destroy the value of their, their future income. And I think that you, you don't want to rely completely on that game theory, but it is okay to, to raw in, it, in some sense,
1: uh, yeah, okay.
0: And then I, I think an, another thing that's that's kind of interesting to, to think about is like the trade-offs to having these you know publicly known um, block producing entities versus these sort of anonymous miners that, that govern other net, not govern but that produce blocks on other networks. And I think it's definitely a trade-off there because you can imagine scenarios in which it could be beneficial or or not beneficial. But like one kind of interesting example is that there's this, you know, programmatic Ponzi scheme or pyramid scheme that exists on Ethereum right now called proof of weak hands. I'm sure everyone's heard of it. A lot of people are sort of speculating that if this pot grows large enough, it's going to incentivize Ethereum miners to collude to censor transactions and take that pot for themselves. I think it's a fascinating experiment. playing out in real life. And... I don't know what's, what exactly is going to happen with it. Who knows if it'll even get large enough to, for those incentives to make sense. But that could theoretically happen on Ethereum. Whereas on something like, like EOS, um, you know, you could say that having these public entities with, with public reputations at risk who are known, it would be a lot harder for them to pull off an attack like that without, again, sort of destroying their, their reputation and their future earnings, you know, potentially get voted, getting voted out, et cetera, et cetera. Now, to take the converse side of that, you could also, um, imagine dApps like Augur that have these sort of quasi-legal markets where the miner, you know, processes a payout for something that is, is considered either unethical or illegal or whatever it may be. And if, if you really want these, um, these markets to be, you know, fully autonomous and, and, you know, have no ethical compass or whatever, it kind of helps to have these anonymous mining entities. Whereas maybe that, that wouldn't make sense for that to get, to get built on, on EOS because you, you do have these public reputations at risk. So I think that I just, I, I really refuse to believe that all these things are binary. I think they have these trade sets that as a DAP developer and as a user and all that, you need to take into account. And I think that they're there. You, you could imagine them coexisting because it's not going to be a winner take all scenario if they're taking radically different trade offs and optimizing for radically different features.
1: Yeah. I can agree with that. Let's talk about governance. So EOS is often positioned as uh, DAO. You've mentioned it yourself a few times. Uh, There's this kind of ideal behind EOS that the token holders control the entire network. And with governance of blockchains, there's always way more nuance to it than that. So something that I'm personally skeptical about is how the actual governance works. So uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Where, where it's, where it's really strong, where it hopes to be, and maybe where some of the shortcomings are today. Yeah, definitely. So
0: the reason that it's kind of interesting to think about EOS as a DAO is because it basically takes like a, like a um, corporate governance structure and just makes it fully transparent and audible, auditable on chains. So you have these token holders who elect what's kind of like a, a board who are the block producers. Um, and then as it stands right now, they're, they're given decision making power. And so, you know, the idea of like crypto governance, as you mentioned, it's a very new topic and it hasn't necessarily been quote unquote solved, but I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's just going to, if it's going to be solved or if there's just going to be different approaches. And I think EOS is, EOS is the first governed blockchain that I think has reached the scale and market cap that EOS has. Um, we've seen some other experiments with, with governance, with things like Dash um, things like Decred, you know, earlier, um, BitShares, um, uh, but none of them have really a- achieved enough scale to actually give us some answers. EOS now has launched and, and is sort of, sort of testing certain assumptions. And then Tezos now has launched as well. And that, you know, governance is kind of the, at the core of their social contract. You know, the EOS governance structure, as I mentioned, it, it's, it's pretty simple. It's pretty easy to grok, um, token holders vote for the block producers. Um, they can vote them in and out. It's a 24-7, consistently running liquid democracy. And now, is that the ideal governance structure for a blockchain? Um, maybe the wrong question, because I think the ideal governance structure for a blockchain depends on what kind of blockchain it is, as we touched upon earlier with like a, a money gold, digital gold blockchain versus something that's trying to be a you know decentralized operating system. But I think another question is also not just like what is the structure of the governance? But I think some of the things that have to evolve are around, like relate more to community norms, incentives to vote, and um, the sort of ease of voting, the ease and the safety of voting. So on on that final point, it's like, you know, is it is it easy to vote with hardware wallets? Is, it, is do people have voting keys that are they're kept online? Can they can they just? log into their wallet and, and cast votes super easily? Is it easy to set up a proxy voter? Like, the more that we can make it a, an extremely seamless UX, the more that that people are going to participate in voting. The second thing is just community norms. And, like, do people understand that when they're buying into EOS, they're buying into this governed structure? And if they want to protect their investment, then they should be participating in voting um, or at least you know um, setting up a proxy to, to vote on their behalf. Oh, the final thing I mentioned was, um, like just incentives to vote. So I know, I don't know a ton about Taylor's, but I know that you are rewarded for, for baking or, or delegating your, your staking power to one of the entities that does bake. And as it stands right now, there is no reward for participating in governance in EOS other than the fact that theoretically you're protecting your investment and contributing to the security of the network. But there has, um, been a new model floated that is, um, sort of, uh, a new model for exchanging the resources in the tokens that would um, have people sort of stake their tokens to this um, internal exchange, and then people can can sort of rent bandwidth and other resource capacity from that. And in order to participate in this exchange, you have to uh, you have to vote for at least twenty one block producers or set up a proxy to vote on your behalf. And if you do stake your tokens to this uh, resource exchange, you can get rewarded with some of the fees that are generated from the exchange if people are interested dan Larimer recently wrote a blog post about this um, exchange model we're going to we're going to be releasing some um, some content that really dives into the, the different trade-offs of this model but what's it, what's especially interesting about it is that it creates a financial incentive for people to participate in voting and the reality is that there's you know there's a lot of different groups of stakeholders in any blockchain but in in EOS and that includes um, you know like individual users developers enterprises hedge funds whales like you name it Um, and if there is a financial incentive to vote, you are automatically going to see, um, you know, more voter participation as a result, um, because there's simply an incentive there. So that's just one of the reasons why I think that that new token model is, is interesting and and worth pursuing. I think the 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 other sort of step forward for governance for EOS is that um you want users to be able to vote not just on who the block producers are, but theoretically on you know general changes to the system and upgrades to the system and changes to the constitution, um or even there is a proposal going around for like what is called the worker proposal system, which is essentially an on-chain treasury. Um, similar to what Dash and Decred have done, where token holders could vote for specific projects to be funded by the blockchain itself. And there, there's not good primitives in place for that right now. Obviously, EOS has built into it the ability to conduct an on-chain vote. But in terms of how that works with the community, it hasn't really been specified yet. And I think that's one of these really important things that, um, the community creates norms around within the next, you know, like year or so. Um, because it, I don't think it makes sense to just have token holders elect block producers and then say block producers make all the decisions. Cause I think at some point you're going to want block producers to really just focus on producing blocks and bringing value in other ways. And you don't want them to get like bogged down with all this decision making. So, you know, creating a way to hold ref, like hold referendums for certain changes on chain is really important.
1: Interesting. It's, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, it seems, it does seem to be, um, a, a more advanced experiment in on chain governance than it gets credit for. I'll say that. Yeah. I, I think so too. What is what's it like to stand up a block producer?
0: Um, So it basically involves like two things. One of like there's two sides to a block producer. One is like the run the server is like the very technical side of it. So I partnered with um with two guys who are you know they've they've run um, nodes on on a bunch of other blockchains. They're really experienced with this. So they're going to run the infrastructure side of things. And then the other role of the block producer is like. Business development, campaigning, like getting out there. And that's very much the role that I'm sort of owning. But it, you know, it involves a lot of different things. Part of it is like, you know, just really getting out there and being in front of the community, getting your name out there, like doing things that, that, that add value. Um, and like I said, like the low hanging fruit from from a lot of the conversations I've had is just around like education. But then the other thing is like, you know, I have relation through MultiCoin, we've got relationships with funds. So I've been going to these funds and like taking meetings with them and just saying like, hey, like, you know, what are your guys' thoughts on the OS right now? Like what do you want to see in block producers? Have you guys voted yet? If like if not, why not? What are the tools you need to to get to get on boarded? Have you been diligencing block producers? All of that. And so, you know, at the end of the day it's a campaign to get votes. So you want to go where the votes are. Um So some of that is like just going directly to these funds and whales and individuals. And then some of that is like really trying to get that long tail of votes of like the quote unquote retail users community, whatever you want to call it. I think, you know, as Tony asked about earlier, like what are the different trade offs Um and like do end users care? And I think to some extent, like we know that, end users don't really care about what's on the back backend. Um, we've seen before that like users don't necessarily care about privacy. They don't really care about the protocol that they're using, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it's going to be, which of these protocols can you build something on? That's going to be able to get users on board, like which, which framework can actually support the use cases that you're going to build on top of it. And I would contend that even though EOS isn't feature complete, it's going to be able to reach that point more quickly than than some of the other alternatives that are out here, because I think that EOS has a very um, EOS is is already more scalable than a lot of the other projects, and in terms of what it needs to to get to to reach full feature completeness and even more scalability, it's a very clear roadmap. Whereas Ethereum, I would contend it, you know, has had to make certain trade-offs on its road to scalability, and I think will make more trade-offs along the way. And I'm not saying that it's going to reach a point where it ends up having the same set of trade-offs as EOS, but I think this idea of solving the scalability trilemma and, um, you know, having everyone be able to run a full node on their laptop all over the world and still having these applications that can, can reach viral adoption is, is probably unrealistic. But I think there's, there's enough room in the world for certain use cases that would, that would prefer one platform or the other. So that's, I think if we're, if we're sort of predicting the next two years, call it, which I think in crypto, you can't really predict beyond that, but. I don't see EOS as the Ethereum killer, um, but nor do I see EOS, or nor do I see Ethereum as as sort of owning the market and not allowing EOS to exist. I think there's there's room for different trade-offs there. Which use cases make more sense for Ethereum versus EOS? Like, I mean, I think the low hanging fruit for for EOS right now is probably um, you know any sort of like blockchain based games or NFTs, particularly because those those uh, kind of are trying to immediately cater to these end users. And like you don't want transaction fees there, and you want a certain level of usability and scalability. I think fully on-chain dexes can be built on on EOS because the block times are fast enough um, and the capacity is there. So that's an interesting use case. Um, I think social networks, because once again, you're you're never going to have a social network where people are paying for each individual operation. And I think further out, there's um, there's a good argument to be made that like tokenized securities could make a lot of sense on something like EOS. Um, and that's sort of like the low hanging near term fruit that I see. What makes more sense on Ethereum? Um, I would say something like, uh, Augur, which require, you know, is, is sort of catering to, um, a use case that requires super decentralization because of its, like, quasi-legal status. I think, you, you know, I, As Ethereum matures, there may be room for, like, formally verified sort of financial contracts
1: on there. Alongside EOS, there have been a ton of other smart contract platforms that are Mm -hmm. trying to fill the same niche as EOS. You've mentioned that you don't think EOS and Ethereum are necessarily, like, only one can survive, that both can play roles in in the ecosystem. But what about the other ones that are either, like, pretty much direct clones of EOS or are trying to achieve some set of similar trade-offs but slightly differently? Yeah, I think
0: that like if if the well as it exists right now, EOS is the only major Ethereum competitor that is actually online. Although I guess as of more recently, Tezos is online as well. But you have other things like Definity and Cadena and Hashgraph, and, and those are all coming online. I think there is going to be a sort of maybe you want to call it the smart contract platform wars, or like a race among these two to see which can capture the use cases. And that's going to depend on on a few different factors. But I think that some of these will start to become more entrenched and establish something of a moat once they actually gain some significant usage. So it's kind of like who, who is in a position to get there first and why. And then I, like, I think that that is going to sort of give them a a somewhat temporary moat. But then if we move, you know, another few years down the line, we may have really smooth interoperability protocols that could kind of change the whole game. But I don't really want to speak to that because right now that's, that's not the case. So we're not really sure how that's going to affect things. But I would say that I think that EOS is unique in the sense that it has very high scalability. It has a token model that, um, that doesn't require users to pay for individual transaction fees. It has human readable account names built in at the protocol level. It has, um, sort of account permissions built in at the protocol level and it's up and running now and people are building dApps on it. People are building tools for it and things are moving pretty fast. So I think that combination of things is unique. And I don't see any other platform that's, that's managed to, to have all those things in tandem in addition to actually you know, being live. And so that's what I think gives EOS kind of a competitive advantage and head start right now. Gotcha. Guys, this is the the definitive EOS podcast. (laughs) Thank you guys (laughs) so so much for coming on. Uh, All right. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Tony, for joining. That was fun. Yeah, it was really fun. Thanks, Miles. Always a pleasure, Tony. I'll talk to you later. All right. guess. Bye. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst